This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello there. It's Jamila Jamil. Are you by any chance listening to this podcast promo while out on a walk? If so, good for you. That's going to make both your mind and your body feel better. On my podcast, I Weigh, this month, we're going to be exploring mental health and talking to amazing guests about other things that you can do to make yourself feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. Guess what, people? Unspooled finally has merch. That's right, people. And it's available only through Podswag, okay? So Podswag, as you know, has merch from all your favorite podcasts all year long. But beginning today, especially for the holidays, we've launched two brand new Unspooled products that we are so excited to finally announce. Um... One of my favorite artists is this guy, Scott Campbell. He does a series called The Great Showdowns. I reached out to him and he created for us this amazing unspooled top 100 poster. It's in his style, which is these really cool watercolors. And it's a hundred different objects from the hundred films on the AFI list. You can follow along with us. It looks, it's a piece of art. Uh, Scott Campbell is amazing. Check him out on Instagram. You can see, but I think you will love it. These personalized illustrations of all the 100 AFI films all covered on Unspooled. And you can check next to each one when you're done. You can hang it up and people won't even know it's a podcast poster. Product number two, if the poster isn't enough for you, get the bundle that every Unspooled listener wants, which is the poster plus a 100 sided die. That's right. You can own your own Zoe Decahedron. You can have it. You can roll along with your friends. <laughs> I don't know why, but you should. It's a great little die to have in your house. You when you know, think about it in those moments when you're like, oh, I wish I had a hundred choices to pick from. You would now have this. So you can find all this at podswag.com slash unspooled. That's podswag.com slash unspooled. You're going to love this poster. You're going to love this die. Give the podcasting gift that all your friends and family want. Podswag.com slash unspooled. Welcome, ludies, to this week's epi of the Unspooled Pod Show of Shows. Amy and Paul are your droogs and sophisticos for this talky-talk-like about all the ins and outs and ins and outs of American cine. This week we'll be videoing a clockwork orange to see is it gorge and gorgeosity made flesh, or if its ultraviolence brings about a sickness in you such that you'll wish to snuff it. So pour yourself a glass of milk plus, or perhaps try the wine, as we strap in your Gulliver to the headset and clamp on the lid locks for a clockwork orange. <laughs> Welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. Amy is away uh, judging the Cairo Film Festival. And the person who left that amazing introduction is anonymous. Uh, did not leave a name, but thank you for that. That is uh, technically the winner of last week's uh, listener challenge. Um, so there was a really interesting thing happening uh, this week on the boards and on Twitter, which was this idea that... Uh, a lot of characters on AFI films uh, might be incels. Now, if you don't know what an incel is, uh, an incel is someone who is involuntarily celibate. And uh, Eve Anderson, the great Eve Anderson, writes that she 
says one of the great joys of Unspooled is not only uh, getting to listen to the show, but actually watch uh, Amy Nicholson in real time deduce that the AFI list is jammed with movies about incels. Now, I know there's a lot of critiques about this list, but this is a pretty fresh one, and I think a lot of people picked up on it. Like Tom Spanks on the Earwolf Forum, he said, I was surprised that Stingo was labeled an incel. I mean, I came here to see if anyone else picked up on this. I can't say I'm an expert on the subject, but aren't incels usually characterized by their contempt towards humanity? I mean, I feel like, if anything, Stingo had this huge heart, and he genuinely loved both Sophie and Nathan. Yeah, I... I don't know how I feel about this. I, I do think, like, if you're talking about Taxi Driver, there is an element of uh, being an incel there. I think there's a probably, look, we're dealing with a lot of films uh, about angry white men. And uh, and, I, and I think, you know, there, we've debated this a lot. I, I don't think that Stingo falls into the incel category. Uh I think that he is looking for love. Yes, he's a virgin, but I don't think he has contempt against humanity. I don't think he's railing against anything. I think he's more of, you know, caught in this love triangle. He's the ducky, if you will, of Sophie's choice. And I don't know if if ducky's an incel, then... Uh, then maybe I was an incel in high school too. Uh, all right. Uh, Liz Brookover writes, so if Sophie's Choice doesn't belong in the top 100, I'm not saying it does or it doesn't, but it's certainly almost off the list as it is. And it's difficult to imagine it staying on the future list, which Meryl Streep movie does belong in the top 100. Well, that's an interesting question. I don't know if I'm like a Meryl Streep expert, There's so many great Meryl Streep performances. And I think sometimes when you think about Meryl Streep, you think about the performance and not the film. That's at least me saying that. Looking at this IMDb page in front of me right now, I'd also say Adaptation would be an interesting film to be on this list. It's a, you know, a very interesting director, a really interesting way of telling a story. So maybe, maybe it's Adaptation. I don't know. I don't know. But you know what? Um, This actually brings me to something that one of our listeners, Philip Hawkins, did, which is a bracket of the film of the millennium. It's basically an NCAA bracket of the best films of the millennium. And there's voting. And you can find this on the Facebook group, but it's kind of, you know, pairing up Shaun of the Dead versus Inception and Inglorious Bastards versus No Country for Old Men, The Dark Knight versus Inside Out. And I'm really curious to see how this kind of pulls together on the uh, Facebook group. So if you want to weigh in on the film of the millennium, we will see there will be one uh, champion there. And Adaptation is, of course, on this list. Adaptation is against Grand Budapest Hotel. And I gotta say, my first gut would be Adaptation would move to the uh, second round. So uh, get in on that. Thank you, Phil Hawkins. Uh, this brings us to our film this week, which, of course, is a Stanley Kubrick classic. Let's get into it. The year is 1971. The average income is about $10,000 a year. The floppy disk and email comes out in 1971. Also, the 26th Amendment lowers the voting age to 18 years old in the United States. Walt Disney World theme park is opened, and Federal Express is started by Fred Smith. It is also the year that Stanley Kubrick releases A Clockwork Orange. Amy, who's in A Clockwork Orange? A Clockwork Orange. Well, it is written and directed by Stanley Kubrick, based on the novel by Anthony Burgess that he wrote in 1962, and the main star is Malcolm McDowell. Um, and so 1971 was also the year that there were a lot of protests about Clockwork Orange, a lot of yes. knockoff crimes that people claimed were inspired by a Clockwork Orange. This and, movie is banned in the United Kingdom, right? Uh, it is willingly withdrawn by Stanley Kubrick after people protest outside his house. Hashtag protest work. Wow. Because there were people getting raped and people getting beaten up and criminals singing, singing in the rain. Oh, so it really was directly affected by this movie. Yeah. It wasn't okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Now, tell us a little bit about this movie. Uh, it's a little complicated, but I feel like uh, we can kind of distill it. Yeah. In essence, it's the story of a 15-year-old kid named Alex. Yes, he doesn't look 15. Malcolm McDowell doesn't look 15. No. Stanley Kubrick would get very touchy about that. How disturbing would this movie be if he looked 15? Very. But yeah. maybe better. Um, but this 15-year-old named Alex, he's irredeemable. He's finally arrested and charged with murder, which he did commit. And then he uh, voluntarily, I would say, goes into this behavioral modification training where he starts to associate music and violence and horror and sex with vomiting. And then the question is, is he better off now than he was before? Who was the true villain? I mean, 
truly it's like the Pavlov dog experiment with a human being. It's like instead of, you know, ringing a bell and making them salivate, it's like ringing a bell and making them stop raping. And so, you know, I've seen Pavlov's dog. Oh, really? Yeah, they have the actual real dog. It's taxidermied in St. Petersburg. <laughs> I didn't realize there was actually just one. I thought there was maybe a bunch of them. Um, well, they have at least a famous one. You know, Russia's really big into taxiderming their famous dogs. I told you I saw yes. Pavlov and Strelka. Oh, I, I mean, I, I still think about that. Um, <laughs> what do you think of this movie, Amy? You know, it's a strange movie. Something I think we'll wind up talking about a lot is Stanley Kubrick's choices in telling the story of A Clockwork Orange versus Anthony Burgess's choices in writing the novel. He mm. changed a lot of stuff. Yes, but from what I've heard, Anthony Burgess seems to have appreciated the changes that Stanley Kubrick made. He thought that they were more cinematic, even though he felt that he wrote in a cinematic way. Yeah, I mean, Anthony Burgess is a guy who wrote, I think, like, Five novels in a year and a half. He went through this crazy burst of creativity when he came back to England. He was a guy who had been living abroad in Singapore. Before that even, he says his wife was attacked and raped and lost a baby and ultimately died. And he had this anger in him, justifiably. He goes to Singapore. He comes back and he looks around England in 1962 and he's like, who are these young people? This this culture has changed a lot. You know, mods and rockers were fighting in the street and he thought – you know, it was almost Fox Newsian. He was watching British news, and it was all about how the youth, these new teenagers, right. this new youth culture, these kids who were watching like Rebel Without a Cause and dancing and having their long hair, were going to ruin the world. Kind of like what we thought about like crack babies, even. You know, it's like the same old story that we keep repeating. Like, look out for these youngsters. Yeah, when I first saw this movie, I was a young guy, and it felt very punk rock and exciting to me. And now I'm watching this movie as an adult. Seeing it with like two kids now, it felt a little different. It felt a little bit more scary and intimidating because I think as you get further away from being a teenager or a young 20-something, you start to look at those people differently. When I first saw it, I was like, this is crazy. It's so nuts. And then when I watch it this time, I'm like, this is the future that we could possibly be living in. And I, I don't know if every society feels like we're on the verge of this, but I feel like we're <laughs> close to being on the verge of this kind of like world. I mean, you know. I think uh, every society does feel like this. But yeah, I mean, I'm not calling you old, but I am yeah. saying you are you aged up to the writer character. You're now right. the Alexander couple. I know. I don't want to be that. Uh, but <laughs> But I think this movie deals with really intense subject matter. I mean. You know, Malcolm McDowell will say, it's a comedy. We intended it to be a comedy. But when people watched it, they were shocked. You know, people really struggled with how to translate this book to screen. You know, at one point, it was going to be a movie for the Rolling Stones with, like, Mick Jagger in the Alex role, which is blows my mind. I could see it, though. Couldn't you see it? Especially a young, young, young Mick Jagger. I mean, it would be interesting. He would have, I mean, yeah, I guess, I yeah, guess he would be, like, be good. The Beatles got Hard Day's Night. What can I do that's even better? <laughs> it would be this. Yeah. I love that, like, all these musicians are attaching themselves to great works of fiction, like when we talked about the Lord of the Rings and the Beatles. But, um, you know, Terry Southern, who's a great writer, also kind of tackled the script and tried to figure out how to translate it. Kubrick didn't even want to do this movie, but he was working on this biopic of Napoleon. And when that fell through, he revisited Clockwork Orange and he kind of gravitated to it because he felt like the lead character of Alex was very Shakespearean. He felt like Alex was a modern day Richard III. Now, if you don't know Richard III, he's basically this Machiavellian character who tries to ascend to the throne in many duplicitous ways. And he only had one actor in mind, which was Malcolm McDowell, who he saw in this movie, If, which was kind of a similar film where it was like a young guy going against authority and Malcolm was this like rebellious and violent teen. That brought him in. Not about the society, not about the idea of like, you know, control or, you know, you know, that idea of like the Pavlov dog idea. It was more that he liked the character. He went in thinking that this is a character that has a Shakespearean kind of story to tell. Well, you sense his love of the character. Like, he loves this guy. Oh, absolutely. I think Burgess wrote this book sort of as not quite an entire cautionary tale, but like a little bit alarmist. Like, hey, 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 let's keep an eye on the kids. What are absolutely. the kids doing? You well, know? By the he way, He had an interview that came out right when the movie came out where he said, like, the title of it was, 
a clockwork orange gang attacked my wife. Like he very much was not on the side of the kids. No, I mean, he lived. I mean, he is the writer. I mean, for for lack of a better, you know, it's it's art imitating life. I mean, that scene is is him. Exactly. But you can tell that Kubrick really is into Malcolm McDowell and this character. Like yeah. He, he loves him. And that love really shifts this film around. I think that the love makes it compelling and terrifying. Well, and- well, he's technically an anti-hero, but unlike most anti-heroes, you know, there isn't a moral compass around him. You know, he's narrating his own story. No one's telling him what he's doing is bad. And when the people do tell him what he's doing is bad, they're viewed as idiots. We don't take their word for it. You know, so when you see him being tortured in the movie, you're on his side. Like, I think that's like I'm the, not. I'm you're not, not at all. <laughs> no, but I think it's interesting to watch how Kubrick wants you to be on well, his that's, side. Well, that's, I guess, what I'm saying. I mean, because yeah. even just think about that famous, famous, famous opening scene. You know, the film opens on his eyes. He's staring out. He's staring at us. Like, yeah. he's looking through the screen, making a connection with you, the audience. He's right, up, he's right away saying, like, I'm not blinking. I am breathing. So, you know, he's, like, active. You know, he's right. alive. You know that he's a human being. And it pulls out and all of his friends are frozen in these tableaus. The whole bar is full of frozen statues of women. But he's not breaking that stare. And he's saying from the beginning of this movie, Alex is the only one who's fully alive here. Well, he's the person with the most personality. I know we talk a lot about the idea that, you know, we're in a culture where everyone's on their phones. And this is a movie that gives you the feeling of people being on their phones. They all seem a little bit checked out. And even though Alex is alive in his ultra violence and his old in and out, in and out. It's not, it's not a good thing, but he does have a life force that is a little bit more electric than everybody else. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of one of the choices that creeps me out a little bit about mm-hmm. Kubrick when he, when he adapted this, you know, the way that Burgess wrote it, like you can't really miss that Alex is horrible. Like he takes home, eat and drugs like two 10-year-old girls mm-hmm. in the book. And in the movie, he's like, oh, those are just absolutely willing teenagers who are like eating popsicles around him and they're right. enjoying it. You know? right. So he makes these little tiny shifts. Well, that's well, not he even makes a tiny him, shift that's like a major shift. He makes him charismatic. I mean, you know, because sort of like when they're showing that in the film, it's like, yes, he goes out and rapes people, but he can also pick up girls at a record store. So it it creates a more interesting persona. It's, he clearly is from wealth, right? He's stealing these things not because he needs them. Because he just wants to have them. Like that drawer full of watches, like he's well off. He's not raping because he wants sex. He can have sex. He's not stealing because he needs money. He has money. Like he's doing it for fun, which is like the scariest type of villain. There, The motivation is just like, fuck it. Yeah, well, the thing is, is like I don't have that much of a problem with making him charismatic. I think that does make an interesting film. Right. But – I think it's more complicated that I think Kubrick goes out of his way to make all the victims worse people who seem like they kind of deserve it. Mm. Actually, you know what? This is interesting. I found a very rare clip of Kubrick talking about how he viewed Alex. Alex. No, I wouldn't say he's positive. I would just say that there's this strange uh, psychological identification with him. It's probably what attracted me to the book is this strange uh, duality of uh, a character who is plainly evil and yet, um, because of him operating on this uh, unconscious level, uh, makes you aware of things in your own personality, which you then identify with him. So do you agree with that, that is Alex a mirror into our soul? Is he acting on the impulses that we have? I mean, I do believe that we are all very bleak and dark and that the sooner we admit it, the better. Right. Yeah, totally. I don't have a problem with the darkness at all. I think I have a problem with the victimization of him for, for what happens next, like that, okay. it, that we should still feel sorry for him. Because I look at my own bad parts and I don't feel bad for me that I have them. Right. I'm like, get over it. Be a better person. And then the second half of the film, Alex gets attacked and beaten by all sorts of different people. But every single person who attacks Alex is a person he's already hurt. You know, right. he gets attacked by his friends who he always yelled at and bossed around. He gets attacked by the old man and his friends. So he It's like his comeuppance. It's his comeuppance. So he puts out energy that just comes back at him. But isn't the movie and, saying like society shouldn't try to fix the people who are are that way? They should just let them be. I mean, that's what the moral of the movie is to a certain degree, right? Sort of, but he also 
asks for it. You know, he like right. begs for it. He hears about the experiment. He kind of wheedles his way into the priest. He's like, but what about it? People keep saying, no, you don't want to do this. He's like, yeah, I do. He thinks he's gaming the system by right. figuring out his shortcut to getting out of prison faster. So when he finally gets the thing he's been working for, I really don't It's feel that bad. It's not like society kind of barged in and said, like, we want this kid, you know, just randomly. I think he walks into a trap and I don't feel that bad for him. Well, let me, but I think we are supposed to feel bad for him because. I, yes. I mean, there's a contrast in the way that he conducts violence and like attacks other people. And then the way that it gets done to him. Like, OK, think about that really early scene where um, he attacks the old man who's like drunk in an alleyway. Yes. He's with his friends. It's kind of frightening. The old man is talking about, you know, kind of sounding a little Fox Newsy and like, what's wrong with the kids these days? Right. But when they hit him, listen for the sounds, because what you really hear, you hear the droogs make noise, but the old man, his cries of pain, the film actually doesn't care. And they're not there. Get onto the old. You oh, it's no order for an old man any longer. What's <laughs> about water is it at all? Men of the moon and men spinning around the earth and there's not no attention paid to earthly law nor or no more. Oh, oh dear land, I fought for thee and I noticed that as well. I feel like the violence is very circus like it, 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 it like even that fight scene in in that warehouse the people are being thrown it, it it's it's cartoon-esque the way that they're dressed in these white costumes it 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 feels like you're watching a cartoon you lose you are desensitized to the violence in the way that it's presented yeah they're you know? like leaping into people's chests like a kung fu movie i was gonna say it, like an old-fashioned like western it's like real wind-up punches <laughs> and flying yeah they're doing the like the air yeah. the windmill punches and then there's sort of a strange thing in that scene where you're like, oh, Alex showing up and beating up these guys kind of rescued that other girl from being raped. Like, is he but the it's quasi not, hero of it's that It's not scene? to rescue that girl. It's just to fuck with that gang. It's true. But there's a little bit of like, what great timing. I mean, right. it, he had to frame the scene that way, I guess Kubrick did. I don't know why. Like, he couldn't just show up and beat up a gang. He was right. like, oh, there's more raping, too. Also, by the way, I love that he's talking about how the rules of, of Earth are, no, are now ignored when Kubrick had just made 2001 and was right. just sort of like, I do live in this future. I'm, I am making films about where man is going and what's wrong with us. But they kind of keep this going because then in the next attack where he's singing, singing in the rain while attacking the poor little Alexanders, you can hear them cry this time, but it doesn't really matter because he's distancing you from it. He's turning it into a music number where he's choreographing it to where the violence doesn't feel... Verite, you know, it right. feels part of this dance almost. So Kubrick is making these choices that take away the pain. Like here, let's listen to this. You hear their pains, but it's folded into into enjoyment. You know, it it takes one of, the, I think, the most hard things to watch in film, which is a rape scene, and kind of makes it engaging. You know, like it's, you know, I, I find it very hard to watch, you know, but this thing. It's that, comical. Like, he yes. keeps doing that with music in the whole movie. Like, even a couple scenes before this, when there's another girl getting, like, yeah. raped by another gang, because that's what you do in this movie. You yeah. get raped a lot. He has, like, this funny, funny music behind it. Like, he's trying to. Well, even the sex scene with the two girls, it's, it's sped up Beethoven. It's like there's some energy to each thing so you're not looking at the depravity of it you're just kind of like it's almost like watching a music video yeah i mean kubrick is trying to do this through his eyes and alex is having fun so he makes it fun but it's creepy that it's fun i just want to flag that he's making the choice to make the violence feel fine well and this is what i want to talk about um i agree with you but i think when you think about this film clockwork orange this is one of the scenes that you think about this singing in the rain rape scene and it feels to me, or at least it always felt to me, like, oh, Kubrick had this grand plan. You know, let's mix music with this terrible action. But it wasn't actually the case. Take a listen to this. A scene in the film uh, where Alex and his three droogs come in and rape uh, a writer's wife and beat the writer up. We arrived at the set, looked at the bare walls for three days, 
um, we rehearsed various bits of the script that we had which weren't good enough. I mean, it just didn't, wasn't working for us. And so um, on the third day, Stanley said to me, can you dance? And I said, yes, why not, you know? I mean, I'm not a dancer, but I went into a sort of uh, soft shoe number and started to um, hum. And then started to sing, singing in the rain. And it was right for the moment. Uh, and Kubrick took this immediately. Within mm -hmm. three hours, he had the rights of the song. So, I mean, he's not rigid in any sense. He's very elastic when he's working. So I thought that was fascinating that this scene that's so kind of iconic was something that was purely improvised. And yet it feels so like the uh, the thesis of this film. Counterpoint. Okay, yeah. <laughs> counterpoint, counterpoint. I mean, the main personality trait that we know about Alex, besides the fact that he likes like raping and murder, yeah. is he really is into pretentious classical music. right. That he's got a little bit of that old uh, Shawshank in him where he's like, ah, I'm a fancy man. I'm a little <laughs> fancy lad. You got to listen to me. So the fact that the one song he draws on just randomly is Gene Kelly, I'm like, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. That seems a little beneath his fancy pants tastes. Okay. So you, yeah, all right. So you <laughs> feel like Malcolm McDowell was not in character enough. You felt like he should have picked a different song. I mean, I guess I don't know how you would sing Beethoven's songs. Right. Yeah. But still, <laughs> I do think what's really perverse about the film is that. As soon as he started to improvise that song, Kubrick was like, oh, we got to get the rights to that. Right. So he went and he got the rights. And to get the rights and play actual Gene Kelly actually singing it over the actual credits seems like such a middle finger to Gene Kelly that I kind of find it funny. I mean, it is pretty aggressive. I mean, who would agree? <laughs> I mean, I've tried to get songs in shows that I've done, and it's such a fucking pain in the ass. And like, but they, they move mountains to be like, well, how is it being done? Oh, in a rape scene. Oh, great. Yeah, sure. No problem. <laughs> I mean, apparently, like, Malcolm McDowell once ran into Gene Kelly at a party, and Gene Kelly just turned and walked away from him. Uh, of course. <laughs> Why did he walk away with, like, a little bit of panache, right? Like, <laughs> stalking, tiny little shoes. I mean, he's got it. He's got that style all the time. You know, just to go back to Alex, and, and we're talking about this whole idea, I think the movie can be viewed as a metaphor, right? We all have these base animal instincts within us, some more than others. And not saying that we're all just longing to rape, but like we are these animals, right? We are animals who then have to live within the confines of society. And we agree to do our deviant behavior in ways that are not going to hurt the people around us. Most people. I mean, I think you're right, but it is interesting that in order to do that argument, Kubrick decides to make all the victims be people who deserve it, too. Because I find that really strange and, like, kind of a strange, suspicious choice. Like, wouldn't the horror of this film be more horrible if the people who are getting attacked didn't really deserve it? Mm -hmm. And also, you know, think about this. In the first half of the film, Alex just attacks people he decides. He goes into at random. Like, here's a house, blah, 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 da, da, da. And the film works overtime to make these people deserve it. Like, right. when he breaks into the cat lady's house. Right. By the way, in like the cat lady in the book is like very old, mm -hmm. you know, and sort of more fragile. Here he makes her younger. He introduces her crotch first. Right. You know, doing a yoga position. And then when he rings the door, he's got this like story of tragedy, this woe. And she has the most unsympathetic voice. You know, she and the couple right before did the same thing. They refuse to help him. They don't want to help him. They think he, that whoever these strangers are are dangerous. They're not wrong about it. But the movie makes them seem unlikable and stuffy like they deserve it. There's even a touch, I feel like, in her voice of the Catherine Hepburn accent that turns mm. people off. Here, let's listen to it. Excuse me, missus, can you please help? There's been a terrible accident. Can I please use your telephone for an ambulance? I'm frankly sorry. There's a telephone in the public house about a mile down the road. I suggest you use that. Missus, this is an emergency. It's a matter of life and death. My friend's lying in the middle of the road, bleeding to death. I'm very sorry, but I never open the door to strangers after dark. And well, shouldn't she, man? So essentially, I think what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is like he's sticking it to the man. That's the way that that's the point of view that we're being fed. Like these are all these upper crusty people. Like we shouldn't have sympathy for them. I would also argue, and I want to see what your perspective is. I mean, this is an aggressively male film, right? There, we don't see any women in a position of power 
besides the psychologist, you see women only as sex objects. This whole entire film is full of phallic symbolism. I mean, not even symbolism, like phallic art. I mean, that Catwoman right there, she's murdered with a giant penis sculpture. And everywhere you see it, the graffiti is penises. The, you know, the art is crotches. It, everything is about like, how is this movie to watch with that? I keep on thinking about that. It's a, a very aggressively male film. Yeah, well, I mean, it opens with women as furniture, mm-hmm. you know? And I mean, one of the droogs like goes up to the milk woman statue. Yeah. And he's a little sweet about it. He's like, oh, here, sorry, love, blah, 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 blah. But even the female statue who dispenses milk is like handcuffed to a wall. You right, know, they just kind of right. keep going with it. It's hard not to notice the way that Kubrick has a little interest or empathy for women in this film. To the point where when uh, Alex is being tested on stage and he's being tested by this woman with lavender hair who comes out fully naked except for her underwear. You know, this woman is there as bait, but the way he has the actress walk in, the way he has her move, the way that he shoots her from like looking up at the boobs, looking down, he's like on the ground. You know, She basically seems almost like one of the Blade Runner robots. You know, she's a very robotic woman. And then right at the end of the scene when Alex, you know, gets sick and he can't grab her boobs like he really wants to. She does this little twirl and a bow, and she's an actress. And the movie almost seems to judge her for that, too, that she just enjoyed winning that scene. You know, it feels very much like pretty women think they can get away with anything. It's really all these little choices. It doesn't make me hate the film, but it just makes me say, like, okay, put a pin in that. Let's look at that. Yeah, I thought about it a lot in watching it this time. This movie is a tricky film. I really loved 2001. I thought that movie is you know, kind of groundbreaking on so many levels. And I love Kubrick films. And this one, I don't think I leave feeling great after this movie. I don't think it's a depressing film. In a way, it's a little bit too simplistic. Well, yeah, it's weird because I feel like Kubrick is trying to make it complicated by saying we're all monsters. Everyone around him in his orbit is almost just as mean as he is in in their own ways. Like, the parole officer um, who shows up at his house to try to, like, convince him to go on the right path, Mr. Deltoid, he's drinking. He seems like he's maybe trying to hit on Alex. He seems a little bit like a He perp. grabs his crotch. He grabs his crotch. You know, nobody in this film seems good except for the chaplain, but the chaplain is a sucker. Well, I'll just go one step further and say I think this movie is very aggressive towards women. Every woman has an issue. And there's so much imagery of sex all over the place that I don't even think that rape in this culture is viewed the way that we view rape. It's just like, no, no, that's the way we live in this world. And there are people who live in their houses that are protected from some of it. But this is just going on. This is just a night. This is not maybe the idea that he's trying to push forward is like, what are we as a culture if we are so desensitized to this, what you know, are you know, is that good for our culture or bad for our culture? Maybe there's a reason why we have to work within the confines of society, right? Because it is a sci-fi film. You know, they're mm-hmm. projecting that in the future we're going to be a lot more numb. And yeah, I think Kubrick is not the most emotionally empathetic of directors. Like we talked about right. this a little bit, to where even the when he's got like. Uh, Corey, you know, the actress, Adrian Corey, who's playing Miss Alexander, the woman who's like clothes get snipped away yeah. and gets raped. You know, it's a sensitive scene for an actress. And, you know, people usually try to take care of that actress. And they're mm-hmm. like, are you okay between takes? And how are you? And he made her do that scene, I think, for four days straight. She said she got beaten up by Malcolm like 39 times wow. in for just one scene. Because I think Kubrick doesn't – he's missing that little chip where he says – Okay, that's fine. Or like, are they right. okay? Well, he I doesn't mean, really have that chip. In fact, I think he might have taken that chip and broken it because when he found out that um, Malcolm McDowell was afraid of snakes, he was like, Alex has a pet snake, which is not in the book. He's like, you wow. got a snake now. I think he just likes torturing people. Well, you know, there's a story with David Prowse who plays Darth Vader, the body of Darth Vader from Star Wars. He's in the film as well. He plays the, uh, for lack of a better term, like the manservant for the writer once the writer is paralyzed. Oh, the Um, giant big bodybuilder dude. Yes. So that's the body of Darth Vader, David Prowse. So he tells a story where Kubrick's like, okay, you'll pick up uh, the writer in the wheelchair. You'll carry him down two flights of stairs and you'll put him at the table. And David Prowse is like, well, okay, that's like he's about 200 pounds. 
Then I have to pick up the wheelchair. Say that's about 30 pounds. And I got to walk down two flights of stairs with the wheelchair and make it look effortless because that's the way he wanted it and place him at the table and then sit down. He's like, I can't do it. And Kubrick looks at him and goes, you'll be able to do it. And Prowse is like, I can do it. But your reputation is not being one take Kubrick. And he said it was so physically challenging to carry this man down that he kept on messing up the shop because by the time he sat at the table, he was breathing so hard. He's like, <gasps> that Kubrick is a cut. What, what? There's issues with the mic. And, it, and he felt so nervous to tell Kubrick that he was literally out of breath from doing this multiple times. And Kubrick only let him do it eight times. But it you see this throughout the whole film. I mean, Malcolm McDowell gets his eyes opened up by these, you know, um, crazy clamps you know, they're trying to protect him. They like kind of um, numb his eyes. And the doctor's like, well, no, you have to lay down if you're going to use these clamps. And Kubrick's like, no, no, no. He needs to be sitting up. So that scratched Malcolm McDowell's cornea. And they actually have a real doctor on set putting eye drops into his eye. That's a real doctor because that's what was going on in his eyes. He does not care about actors. He's making a movie and that's it. And I think it's across the board and that's, There is an Alex-esque quality to Stanley Kubrick. He's making these people do what he wants them to do. He's like puppeteering them, no matter what their actual emotions are or who they are. Yeah, I mean, Kubrick looks at an actor like it's a plastic table shaped like a lady. Yeah, You know, you're here for this purpose. I put my feet on you. You don't complain about it. And (laughs) I guess it makes sense, like, that he would be interested in examining people who are a lot like him and then being like, we're all like this, though, aren't we? Right. And then you're like, well, we are, but you're a little more like this, man. Can we call you out on it? Right. Also, by the way, bouncing off your uh, Star Wars cameo. Yes. There's somebody else in this movie that we saw in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, who's that? Uh, when they go back to the milk bar, there's a big old bouncer standing by the door. That big old bouncer is none other than Pat Roach, who winds up being the oh, German yes. with the bald head yes, who gets yes, his head yes. bashed into the propeller. I think it was his first movie role, so... Hello, Pat Roach. Welcome to acting. (laughs) Welcome to acting. You know, you mentioned one thing before that I wanted to talk about a little bit. I think what people forget about this film, it's a sci-fi film. And I think the way that Kubrick approaches his version of the future is really interesting because here we are in, uh, you know, 1971, and he's not using many futuristic sets. Like I think there's only three sets created in the entire film. It's the Corova Milk Bar, the uh, entrance to the prison where he's like first like unpacking his pockets and getting in the bath, and the home of the writer. Those are the only three sets. Everything else is practical locations. And I think that that is really interesting for sci-fi. We, we live in a world full of CGI and, you know, we can digitally replace everything. But it makes it feel more dystopian because it's familiar. And I thought that was a really interesting way of approaching, you know, the future. Just like 2001, which really, you know, blew out what the world would be. This shows a different type of future that almost grounds you. Like we went from the fantastical, the, the you know, the height of imagination, what the world can be and what it would be like to be in space, you know, in the star child to this other version of the future, which is, You know, we didn't make it. We fucked up somehow. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if, I mean, a lot of the set design, I think, also kind of helps with that distancing effect. You know, the houses that he breaks into that say literally home on the outside and look like German expressionist buildings or art galleries on the inside. Nobody lives in that. It's not like, like I've been, you know, when I was talking about Halloween, how Michael Myers is breaking into a home that could be your home. Right. That's not happening. You're not watching this being like, oh, that could be me. You know, every little choice takes you away from the victims and closer to Alex. Although there is that insane car, you know, the the car scene, which I also find really kind of funny when they're driving to go attack. You know, he's in this insanely crazy car. I think it's a type of car they only made three of. It's called the Adams Probe. And yeah, it was like less than three feet tall. But the way that he shoots the car scene even is artificial. You know, it's one of the most blatant, like, this isn't the real backdrop car scene since like the 30s. You know, it just looks like a silent film because he keeps being like, this isn't real. Don't worry about it. This isn't real. But But you know when he makes the switch. Yes. It's interesting because isn't there a little taste of this early on in the film where you see like Alex likes violent movies. And so he's envisioning his night like the movies that he's watching. So it's interesting to see that scene 
like an old movie because maybe this is his interpretation of his night. It It is comical. It's bigger. You know, when you see the clip of that film in the film, you know, it's like they're punching a guy in the face and he's getting off on that. You know, and you see him with the vampire teeth. Like, you know, he's his fantasy of that night is being in a movie and celebrating that violence. I think you're exactly right. And Kubrick is leaning into that. He's like, let's all do it. Come yeah. on, let's go with him. Even the lenses that he's picking, they break into the writer's home and the typewriter looks as big as the man himself. Everything looks like cartoonish, exaggerated. But then when he finally decides to get real, he only Kubrick only decides to get real when Alex is hurt. Because the very first real blood you see in this film is just Alex's. Right. It's when Alex has been beaten up and then he's like begging for your sympathy. And the movie is asking for your sympathy too because now you're actually seeing a person with consequences. Here, let's even play a little bit of that. This is the real weepy and like tragic part of the story beginning, oh my brothers and only friends. After a trial with judges and a jury and some very hard words spoken against your friend and humble narrator, he was sentenced to 14 years in Stager number 84F among smelly perverts and hardened prestupniks. The shock sending my dadder, beating his bruised and groovy rookers against unfair bog in his heaven. And my mum, boo-hoo-hooing in her mother's grief at her only child and son of her bosom, like letting everybody down, real horror show. You got him with this weepy violin music. You know, saying that I'm your beloved narrator. It seems very sympathetic on the, on the surface, yeah. and I think it functions sympathetically. But one of the last things he says is that his mother is boo-hoo-hooing. And when you go back and see his mom when he gets out, she does not care. So well, that was either, like, delusional or a lie. And I and the movie must know that, but well, what's happening? Don't you think that the mother didn't know exactly what he was up to? I mean, that's what I get from his parents, that they're kind of checked out. So. She might have been boo-hoo-hooing in that moment because that was the first time she actually had to come to terms with the fact that her son is essentially a psychopath. And then she quickly moved on because they're so checked out anyway as parents. I think one of the things I noticed in this scene, though, was something we talked about earlier. There is no line to show us that he is bad because he tells us his version of the trial. We don't see the trial. We don't hear the trial. We don't see any of the victims of the trial. We just hear him kind of lightly walk by it. And I also just want to point out the one thing that I think he does so good in this film, Kubrick, and that's in the writing of it, is using this Nadzat language that was in the book. And I read the book, and the book is tough to read. You're constantly jumping back and forth to the glossary because you're learning like a whole new language. And I think this movie does a great job at like really giving you the words, but giving you context clues as well. But it really feels natural. Like I, I, I hate like the idea of like, you know, and Back to the Future 2, like, hey, man, you're real bojo. You know, people try to create their own words, but this this really, I think, created a, a real ease of language. I mean, that's all due to the book, but uh, I just, just one thing and just listening to all that. Yeah, I feel like in the book, all that language kind of does what Kubrick does a little bit with his visuals. You know, it takes what would be a horrible scene if we really were, like, paying attention to yeah. what was happening into it. And you don't really get it. Like in the book, when he talks about raping women, he's like, oh, Harpisha and the Glazies and the Litso and the Vesh. Right. So you kind of understand through inference what's happening. But he's not like, we took this woman and then this is exactly what well, we did Well, the old in and out, in and out doesn't sound like it's not rape. If you say the old in and out, in and out. you know, ultra violence sounds, it sounds like a glamorized version of violence. It seems like, oh, I would like some ultra violence. You yeah, know, it's normal like normal violence won't do anymore. It seems like an upgrade that I would get at like, you know, Jamba Juice, a little ultra violence, please. I never thought about that. And now you kind of blew my mind that this whole language distances you from the emotion of these scenes. And that's what we're seeing the entire film is we're separating the emotion of what's going on. If we talk about this movie and we told you what went on, you'd be like, this is the most dark fucked up movie I've ever seen, you know, but we're, we're always at an arm's length. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, what's happening to us as an audience is not that different than the way that even Alex sees movies. I mean, here's yeah. the scene where he's a film critic talking about what he likes in movies, which, you know, is happening while his eyes are pinned open and he's not minding. The sounds were a real horror show. You could slushy the screams and moans, very realistic. And you could even get the heavy breathing and panting of the tall chopping malchicks at the same time. And then what do you know? Soon our dear old friend, the red, red vino on tap, the same in all places like it's put out by the same big firm, began to flow. It was beautiful. 
It's funny how the colors of the real world only seem really real when you video them on a screen. Right? I mean, he's watching you know, a movie that's not that different than what we saw at the beginning. A bunch of dudes yeah. in a white costume beating up a random stranger. The difference is in his version here, you see the blood, which we right. don't see. But he calls it wine. Yeah, so it's Vino not that big tap. of a deal. Yeah, like Burgess always said that he saw this book as he called it a sermon on the importance of choice. To him, he had been raised religious. He thought that free will, man's free will, was like the ultimate thing that he believed in. And so he really did see a tragedy in like taking away Alex's right to choose to be good, which maybe me be just being cautious. I'm like, yeah. he's never going to choose to be good. So I don't really feel that bad about it. But he also, I mean, some of the stuff Bridges said I thought was really, he was trying to say like people would ask him in interviews like, well, don't you think even Hitler probably deserved this treatment? Right. He would say no. Like, he would say, wow. he called Hitler in one interview. He's like, oh, Hitler was a nuisance. Huh. Like, uh, okay, okay, okay. Right. But then he went on to say, like, you know, but history has known tons of others who are disruptive enough that would make the state want to do this to them. And then he said Christ. So he wow. was almost making this argument that Pontius Pilate might have been like, okay, take this Jesus guy, prop his eyes open, give him a little bit of the ultraviolence. And, like, who is society to draw a line? I kind of agree with that in, in the general sense. Like, the idea of free will is what keeps us going and functioning. Like, we all get up every day. We go to work, we go to school, but at the end of the day, if we all go, well, we're going to die anyway, why do we do this? We should just go and be insane on the streets. We should be animals. But the idea of free will makes us human. It makes us civilized. And, you know, we see this person that we talked about, like Alex has the most life force in the movie and they take it away from him. And if we are to do that for anyone who acts outside the norms of society, for better or for worse, we are living in a a less interesting society. I mean, because the creative people would be also muted. I mean, I do think that that's what makes the movie so compelling and so intoxicating. And so, like, why we dress up like Alex for Halloween, which tons of people do. But there is also this question I just want to ask, like, what about the free will to not get murdered by him? And what about the fact that the people who do get murdered by him are not seen as human beings either by the movie? They don't get half the sympathy. But if you're a killer, you're not empathizing with other people. You know, Patrick Bateman isn't looking at his victims going, oh, I'm so bad. Like, you are an insane person. We're looking at this person's point of view. I found it interesting that the book, the publishers of the book made uh, Anthony Burgess put a happy ending into the book. You know, and it was like, basically, uh, at the end of the book, Alex renounces his violent past and he's like, I'm going to be a good man. And... Because I think the publishers felt like, no, people can't accept this end. I mean, Kubrick restored it to what it actually was, which is a much more ambiguous thing. Like, I, I think the end is interesting. It's sort of like, you know, he he says he is cured. But what is cured? Is cured just like, oh, all right, I can now, I know how to navigate society. He gets everything he wants. He's free. He has free will. And as long as he stays within these parameters, literally, he is caged in by a row of people while he's having sex with that girl in the middle of the snow. Like, as long as he doesn't go outside of that line, he's safe. But it's so weird that all those people who are bracketing him are like fancy Victorian ladies with parasols. Too. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know where all that. <laughs> I, I can't draw all the comparisons, but I, I, but because it is interesting. Like, you know, early on we see him reading the Bible and he envisions himself as uh, essentially a Roman soldier whipping Jesus, like. He views himself theatrically, you know, throughout the whole film. But I did think there's something interesting about those two lines of people that, that holding him within the lines of society. He's still having wild sex, but just with one person, not two. And, you know, it, it's sort of like this idea he made a, he made a deal with society to live in society. I'm not totally sure that sex is willing at the end, but I'm really, really? Not, I'm not. Okay. I, she doesn't. She looks like she's trying to get away from him. Kind okay. of. But I'm not sure. I mean, there is, there is though, to to what you just mentioned, like there is a ton of Jesus in here. There's like the statues of the Jesuses next to each other, kind mm-hmm. of like they're dancing, like they're doing the horror. Yeah. And they're also like in bleeding crucifix pose, which is interesting because he's got those cufflinks on that are also fake blood, yes, the eyeballs, and in eyeballs. that same scene. Yeah. And so you get that moment when he's like pretending to be religious and you get that flashback well, to, didn't, didn't you I mean, even... it's almost like you're flashbacking to the fucked up version of Ben-Hur. In fact, let's play that. Okay. I read all about the scourging and the crowning with thorns. 
and I could vidy myself helping in and even taking charge of the tolchocking and the nailing in, being dressed in the height of Roman fashion. I mean, I do enjoy this real emotional screwed upness of imagining being the Roman in that. And also, yeah. Kubrick did make Spartacus, so I feel like that's another kind of strange callback to his uh, sword and sandals day. You know, that scene reminds me of kind of this whole journey that he has when he finds religion, which reminded me so much of African Queen. You know, that he's in the church playing the organ for these people that don't really want to be there, but they have to kind of be there. And, you know, it, it just shows this whole movie is kind of the way that society tries to conform you, whether it's the guidance counselor, whether it's church. Well, what's kind of interesting about his arc, too, is no matter what you think is going on with him at the end of the film, whether you think he's cured or not, whether you think he's lying, I think he's lying because okay. all he ever does is lie in the movie. He lies that he needs help with his friends to get into people's houses. Oh, yeah. He lies I think to get he's lying that and, he's cured. He just knows how to act now. Yeah, I think he's lying. I think there's like an irony in that he shows up at the home of the home. Right. And he's lying. And he's not lying for one minute that he actually really does need help. And who would trust him now? But whatever you think about that, one arc that is kind of true is that he starts off totally free. And at the end, no matter what he does after this, he's a pawn because he's become a pawn of right. politicians. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this whole thing in but there aren't where. we all pawns? We're playing by someone else's system, Amy. Right. But he. You know, has been treated very lovely so that people right. are on the side of the minister. And the minister is using him for his own gain, not just for his own election. But there's kind of this throwaway line in there where the minister is visiting him in bed where he's like, oh, yeah, your victim, that writer guy. Right. The Paul. I just want to call yeah. him the Paul now All to right, be like, yeah. let's make it human. Let's oh, care no. about this All guy. Right. Yeah. The Paul is mad at him, of course, for like triggering his wife's death but when he shows up at the paul's house well, i don't know why i'm doing this this is mean yeah, to call i mean really paul. picturing me making a picture of things i don't want to picture but <laughs> go know, ahead go right. ahead go ahead he shows up at the paul's house and the paul is like i can use this because i'm against the government and i can use you to embarrass the government and so then when the politician comes back into the room and he's like free dish in the in the bed he mentions offhand that the writer that the paul has been locked up in prison because He's a subversive influence on society. And so this poor guy has had his house break, broken into, his wife raped. He's been beaten up. He's in prison at the end of the movie, a place where Alex deserves to be, and he is not. No, I think what you're saying is valid. And maybe that's why Kubrick is such a great director, because we can sit here and have a discussion about this film and what the intent of this film is in the same way we talked about Taxi Driver. And what are we saying about society? You know, does society create these people? By the way, going to see this movie is a challenge. This movie is rated X. It's nominated for Best Picture. It's rated X. I mean, only two movies have ever been rated X and nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, I think, honestly, if Clockwork Orange came out today, if it had mm -hmm. never existed and came out today, it would get exactly the same response in terms of people being like, wow, and what does it mean? And I don't know if I like what it means, but wow. Honestly, Kubrick used... The fact that this film looks and feels and sounds like art kind of as his backup, as his defense. Whenever people would accuse him of making something that they thought crossed the line, he would say, well, it was highly praised by Fellini, Bunuel, and Kurosawa. Wow. I mean, he told an interviewer straight out, this film has been accepted as a work of art and no work of art has ever done social harm. Although a great deal of social harm has been done by those who, who seek to protect society from works of art. So he's basically saying, if you have an issue with my film, you're pro-censorship and you're an asshole, which I kind of resent that. But Right. Well, because clearly it did affect him directly. I mean, people were protesting out of his house because there were copycat murders. I can't remember the time that a movie had been copycat. The only other time I can think of is that, that football movie where they showed the kids like lying in the middle <laughs> of the highway and then kids lied in the middle of the highway. That happened near my house, which is insane. But I also think based on what I know about Kubrick, and I don't know everything, but I know a little bit, this is the only film that's really directly from the book. You know, everyone would carry the book on set and look at the book for like dialogue and stage directions. Like, you know, they were really treating this text as sacred. And I think everything else that Kubrick has done before and after feels like he took his own take on it. You know, The Shining isn't The Shining that Stephen King wrote. It has elements of it, but it's a very Kubrickian thing. And this feels like he really embraced what he got from the book. That's so funny because 
you know, when it makes perfect sense why Kubrick would do this film. He was always like, oh, you think that book can't be a movie? Lolita, I'll show you. Right. I'll make 2001 a movie. I'll make every difficult book a movie. That was his favorite thing to do is like take something people thought was unfilmable and make it a movie. I ultimately think that A Clockwork Orange is a really dazzling, good film for everything that annoys me about it or upsets me about it or irritates me about it because art should do that. I think it's a bad adaptation. Because he's wow. not doing at all what Burgess was trying to get across. He's well, changing so much of it, and he's, like, recalibrating all the emotions and all the idea of, like, right and wrong and who's a victim. He's made his own organ out of it. But it's interesting because Burgess was a fan of this film. I mean, here, listen to him talk a little bit about what Kubrick brought to it. Uh, how do you feel about those additions? Oh, I was, I, I was very pleased with the particular one you mentioned, where Alex is eating uh, spaghetti bolognese and uh, drinking wine and... It has the quality of an improvisation, which is admirable, I feel. It's very free-moving. And it's a kind of link. It's a link, which is obviously a, cinem- a very cinematic conception. But it, it, it finds a parallel in the book. It's the exact cinematic parallel of the kind of uh, sequence I had in the book, which is a little more complex than the one we have here. Uh, but uh, the job done in the film is probably a little better than the job done my own, by, by my own sequence in the book, because it's a lot simpler. And so uh, I have nothing but praise for the way he's... Uh, found these equivalents, the cinematic equivalents for these literary conceptions. Mm-hmm. I, by the way, I had so much fun listening to him. There, This is an interview where both he and Malcolm McDowell are smoking cigarettes. The interviewer is incredibly confrontational. I did find it interesting to have the actor of the film and the writer of the book sitting together talking about this. And I was surprised to see how well uh, you know, the writer felt the movie adapted his vision, which is very rare. You know, they, you know, I think that you talk to anyone and they feel like, well, you didn't get it quite right. You know, I don't know if he's also playing the game to sell more books. I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he was playing the game to sell more books because I think he only ever made 500 bucks total from this movie being made. Oh, wow. Uh, yes, I'm atomic mad. If you like this, come buy my book. I'm sure you'll enjoy it very much. Uh, I know that that clearly people did not like this movie. I mean, right, the reaction to this film was uh, extreme. Are there a few bad reviews of A Clockwork Orange? Yeah, there's a really famous one by Pauline Kael, but we've been doing a lot of Kael. Yeah. So I thought, you know, I'll just announce that Pauline Kael really went after it. Uh, she did close it by talking about, you know, what the title means, A Clockwork Orange, this idea that we, we a human being, is born like a biological creation, and then man, society, turns us into a machine. But hmm. she said... We become clockwork oranges if we accept all this pop culture without asking what's in it. Oh, that is interesting. I I didn't understand it. I know that clockwork orange is talked about a lot more in the book, like the actual title of clockwork orange, uh, because it came from like this cockney slang term. Uh, but I really like that idea that Kale puts forward here. You know, we all essentially have to make sure that we're not falling into a clockwork orange because, you know, we're just constantly on our phones or taking in pop culture. She's smart. Uh, all right. So hit me with another. OK, well, so here is the Christian Science Monitor. The Christian Science Monitor really complemented the way Kubrick does things because it is impossible to watch this film and not think like, wow, you know, this whole film is very wow. Yeah. But they said... Because Kubrick is such an accomplished craftsman, the film is the grisly ultimate in what Tom Wolfe calls porno violence. Mm. They said it was a misuse of his talent that it seems to drown in its own obscene violence. And they even said that it was a film so repellent its X rating seems not warning enough. Maybe this is the issue with tackling a subject matter that is this intense. It's hard when you're putting forth something so violent, so intense to look at it subjectively. And I think that Kubrick does everything in the book to make you kind of sympathize with this character by adding music, by adding the color, the way it's shot. But I think there are always going to be people that are just going to see what is the face value of it. You know, it's like they're raping someone. That's what I'm seeing. I'm not seeing the statement that you're trying to make, you know? And I think that that's the problem with art where you are trying to be layered and you're trying to, you know, push boundaries. I mean, is it weird to say that I think I'm more offended by the empathy by for Alex than even what he's doing sometimes? I think 
Kubrick excusing Alex and making what Alex does fun and exciting is really Kubrick saying, if it's exciting that Alex is doing it, then you forgive me for making this film. Which I'm not I'm not judgment calling that. Right. I'm just saying, can we admit that that's what he's doing here? Yes, but can we admit that that's what every film that we watch is? I mean, to a certain extent, Michael Myers from Halloween is that. Norman Bates is that. Every time we see these killers, ultimately, in a good horror film, like we're going... Oh, but I understand oh, hold it. Hold the phone, though. Yeah. We like Marion Crane, and we like Jamie Lee Curtis. Okay, I hear we don't that. get to like anybody here. But we don't even live with anybody here for long enough to like them. Whose ba- choice is that? I mean, right. come on. <laughs> but I, I guess, like, we're we're with him on a night of, I'm going here to here to here. It's not like he's murdering his friends. I mean, do you feel like you feel a connection to the person that Patrick Bateman murders in American Psycho when he's playing Huey Lewis in the news? like Some of them. There's that one prostitute who's very lovely. Oh, yeah. The more, you know, All right, the I buy that. One. I don't know. I think that a lot of our modern figures of horror, you are forced like, oh, well, Norman Bates' mom did this, and that's why we feel that But way. Norman was maybe lying about his mom. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do love uh, Malcolm McDowell's mom in here. She's got like the hipster outfit, her little black leather jumpers. I feel like the film is maybe casting a little bit of like judgment on her. Like, lady, don't show your knees like that. And by the way, she seems seems a lot more intense after he goes to prison. Like she really like opened up a lot. Uh, She's like a lot more in heavy leather outfits. Uh, Just like seems like real stylish. Um, I don't even have to ask because I know there are many a Simpsons reference to this film. There are so many Simpsons. I mean, basically everybody in The Simpsons has taken a turn dressing like Alex. I mean, right. not just Bart, but like Maggie. There's a whole Simpsons segment called A Clockwork Yellow, basically told through the story of Moe as being Alex. It's, there's so much in that. I didn't even actually pull a yeah. clip. Although they do turn going out for the old in and out into standing in the door, the automatic door of the Quickie Mart, and just annoying it and making it open and close and <laughs> open and close. Uh, instead, I just pulled a tiny clip uh, from an episode where they decide to give this horrible treatment to Santa's little helper. Mr. Burns wants to make Santa's little helper into an evil dog. He uh, pulls his eyes open. And what you're going to picture is poor Santa's little helper seeing images of cats and dogs and mayhem. Now here's a film that will turn you into a vicious, soulless killer. Enjoy. <laughs> getting whacked, kittens with string, the Hindenburg, a tank on a doghouse, a dog being pulled by the ears. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this movie has the same thing that Taxi Driver has to a certain degree, where it's so parodied that we may have gotten away from what is actually going on in this movie. Is it one of these things where it's so visually arresting that we just remember the images and we're not actually thinking about what the story is? Because it is this... I mean, it. I know that they say it's a dark comedy. It, It's not like, let's pop this in. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, everything you're saying is what Kubrick wanted to happen. So he did it. He did it. He did whatever he wanted to do really well. Well, um, <laughs> and, and just to kind of put a cap on Kubrick, I mean, we're going to come back to him. But just to continue our story about how much Kubrick is kind of a dick and manipulates his actors and maybe is a little bit of Alex. Oh, I um, love Kubrick as a dick stories. So basically, uh, they had to do voiceover for the film, a lot of voiceover. And they recorded it over two weeks uh, after the film had been edited together. And to break up these sessions that stressed John for hours, you can imagine Kubrick getting the exact Would right you line reading. Would for Kubrick? Would I? Yeah. You know, yes and no. I had someone that I know very well work with David Fincher. And I think Fincher is probably the closest person to Kubrick. And the way that I heard... Fincher works and the way I've heard stories about Kubrick is if you're prepared for it and you come with your A game, you're going to be worked. You're going to be like uh, a member of like a football squad. They're going to make you run drills. They're going to make you go backwards and forwards so much so that you don't even remember what you're doing. But if you start to fight against the machine, that's when you have the problems. I think. Oh, obviously he doesn't want you to fight the machine. Ah, there it is. There Look it at is. this. Yeah, there it is. Um, but, you know, I think that, that you'd have to just go in knowing that. And I think listening to Malcolm McDowell, he seemed very uh, attuned to, like, going along for the process, even though he didn't know who Stanley Kubrick was when he accepted the film. Did you know that? No. He thought he was the director of the It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, Stanley Kramer. 
<laughs> uh, which is just dumb. So anyway, they're doing this post-production ADR thing and um, they would break up the sessions by playing ping pong. And so Malcolm McDowell gets his paycheck and two weeks of work, he only got one paycheck for one week. And he's like, well, wait, we did two weeks of work on this. And Kubrick said, oh, well, yeah, but um, if you think of it like this, we played ping pong for like one of those weeks and we recorded for one of those weeks. He basically like just like he just took him and said, well, you know, like because you needed to play ping pong, you weren't actually working there. So those breaks don't count as actual work. So only one week to pay you. You know, a guy makes a beautiful looking movie. I don't think we should trust him as a moral authority. And I think all of his moral conclusions in his film should just be flagged as suspect. Can I just say that? <laughs> I think you can. Um, so, Amy, it leads me to this question. A Clockwork Orange, number 70 on the AFI Top 100 Films, in between Tootsie and Saving Private Ryan. Well, first of all, A, does it belong on the list? And is it properly placed? I mean, it feels like such a major part of pop culture. It's hard to imagine it not being on the list. I'm glad it's bottom 50. Right. When I came in here today, I was like, I don't know if this is the Kubrick film that should be on this list. But then having this conversation... I feel the same way that I felt when we talked about Taxi Driver. Like there's so much to talk about in the society. And it's something that feels of this moment. I think it feels probably of the moment anytime you would see this film. There's a lot here. It's a complicated film. I think that the danger of this film is looking at it like it's a dark comedy. I think it's a movie that should be discussed. I think it's a movie that needs to be, the layers need to be peeled back a little bit because I think what it is trying to do is make a grander statement. And if not examined, it could give you the wrong uh, wrong feelings. Okay, well then here's the question. Okay. If the conversation for this overlaps a fair amount with the conversation for Taxi Driver, do we need them both? Hmm, well, then I'll throw another <laughs> question to you. Which one would you knock off? Taxi driver. Yeah, me too. Okay, then. Yeah. Okay. All That's right. Their, uh, well, bada bing, bada boom. We saw that. It. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Amy, this has been uh, fantastic yeah. talking to you about this movie. Um, well, you know, there's one thing I think ultimately that I can say that you and I do both have in common with yes. Alex. What is that? It's quite simple, really. We're just going to show you some films. You mean like going to the pictures? Something like that. Well, that's good. I like to biddy the old films now and again. That is us. I mean, that is that is us. So, Amy, my droog, please roll the die, and I pray to Bog that we get a good one. All right. So, Amy is back in Cairo. Look at that little podcasting magic. We recorded a couple episodes ahead of time, so we rolled the die off mic, uh, and it came up number fifty-seven, which is Rocky, the original Rocky Creed two, right now in theaters, a huge hit. But my question to you is, have you seen the original Rocky? I know that I haven't. I've seen Rocky. I've lived with Rocky my entire life. Have you seen the original Rocky? Let us know. And if not, what's been your entry point into the franchise? Has it been Creed? Has it been Creed 2? Rocky 3? That was mine. Give us a call at 747-666-5824 with your answer. Have you seen Rocky? And if not, what was your first experience with Rocky? in the film sense. All right, we will see you next week for Rocky! This is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nuts. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, Jazos. <laughs> Ruler of the Eighth Circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.